This week I was told on the internet by someone who doesn't think very much of my Christianity that I am a DIY Christian. I'm a do-it-yourself Christian. And uh, if you're familiar with the DIY movement, you know that you're supposed to be omnipotently capable to fix plumbing and roofing and everything else that's in your home. Otherwise, if you're not a DIY guy, what are you? And so it's, a, it's kind of a good little slam to lay against somebody that you're a DIY Christian. And frankly, if you're a DIY wannabe like me, you know, you go to Home Depot, you go to these stores that are the size of a small country, and you try to find your thing, and then you do buy it, but you find out you bought it wrong, so you got to go back and get the right one, and then you bring it home, and then you find out when you break it that you have to go back a third time, and then you finally ask for some help. And then if you're like me, you're the kind of guy who you eventually get there, but it costs twice as much, and it took twice as long as somebody. So when you say a DIY, it, it kind of strikes me as, as comical. Uh, and we live in, in a time when you're supposed to be DIY, you know? You have cable shows on, on your cable TV that are all about how to do it yourself. So we live in a world where being a DIY person is good, but if you look at the last verse of Romans 4, it's not so good to be a DIY Christian because Paul writes, the apostle, he wrote this. He wrote in verse 25, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And this verse tells me that the only contribution that I have made, the only DIY part of my salvation that I have made is by being a transgressor. The only thing I've contributed to my salvation is my sin. So if that's what he means by being a DIY Christian, I have to plead guilty. But the second half of verse 25 says that Jesus was raised because of our justification. He was delivered over to the cross because of our transgressions, our sins, but he was raised for the cause of our justification. And that is a wonderful thing. The point of verse 25 is that Jesus Christ does all the work of salvation. Well, we're going to build on that this morning. We're going to walk together through verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. And I just want to point out a couple of things before we do. Look at verse 2, if you have your Bible. It talks there at the end about how we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Or maybe your version says boast. You might even have the word rejoice. You'll see that again in verse 3. Uh, not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Again, you might have the word boast, depending on your translation. And look down with me, please, at verse 11. Not only this, but we also exalt in God or or boast in God. And so you have laid before you now the theme of verses 1 through 11. This is a, a boasting passage, a passage in, about things that we Christians boast about. Now let's read through the passage with that in mind. Join me in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, 
because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. <laughs> it's a great passage, isn't it? And so if you're, if you're a note taker and you want to follow along, I'm going to give you six boasts as we walk through the passage. So if you like to take notes and that helps you to pay attention or it gives you something to go back to later, you can put that down as your headline here, your, your organizing principle of, of six boasts for every single Christian. And every one of them is earned by Christ himself, but we are the boasters in it. Let's jump right in then in verse 1 where the first boast is an unshakable peace. Every Christian has an unshakable peace. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let those words sink in just a little bit, please. Justified by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith. This is not anyone justifying themselves. This is someone being justified by someone else, and that someone else is God. It's a passive voice. It is God who has done the justification in this passage, not man. This is not a DIY Christianity. Now, justification is a declaration of legal righteousness, it's not a measure of your righteousness. It's actually a measure of Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness, as has already been proven in the book of Romans, is a legal, forensic, perfect righteousness. Forensic meaning it has to do with the law. It has to do with a declared righteousness. Let's compare it for a second to a legal righteousness that you have as a as a faithful and dutiful taxpayer in the state of Connecticut. All right? If you keep all the laws of your state, you are only innocent. Okay? But it's always waiting for you to mess up and possibly get pulled over or somebody catches you or you didn't pay enough tax or something is out there. You're always on the edge, but you're never declared by the laws of Connecticut righteous. The best you can do is be innocent. You're innocent of breaking any laws. So that's the best you can do. You can be innocent in the eyes of the law. Now, Jesus Christ lived 33 years, and all of those 33 years, he kept a holy law, God's law, and so he was more than innocent. He was righteous in the eyes of God fully, perfectly 
legally by keeping the entire law code that God had given through Moses, he was righteous. So while the best we can be here on this wonderful state is to be innocent in the eyes of the law, Jesus Christ was perfect in the eyes of God. Utterly perfect. And so he is righteous. Now, if you have come to God through Jesus Christ, sacred scripture clearly says here that you are credited with full righteousness. Look back at verse 1. The word justified there in the original language is the same word as righteousness. In fact, it would have been a really good, good, good translation if they had said, we have been righteousnessed by faith. That would have been so cool. We don't have that word in our language. That's exactly what it says. We have been righteousnessed. So sacred scripture tells you that you have full righteousness as a Christian. You are clothed fully in the robes of Christ's righteousness. And this point is confirmed in verse 1 by those words, by faith. Do you see those words there? That means that you've abandoned all attempts, every attempt to try to become good enough before God to earn God's kindness by your sincerity or by doing things that you believe he wants you to do. However you make that up in your own little private world, that means by faith, means you've abandoned all of that and exchanged it instead to trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross alone. So that's what by faith has to do with Faith here means I reject me doing anything to get the salvation that I need from God. And instead, I turn away from anything that I do, and by faith, I accept what God's Son did completely. So every one of us in here is tempted to want to trust in ourselves. It's just part of who we are by nature. But coming to Jesus Christ by faith means I recognize that and I turn away from that. And instead, I trust in what God did through Jesus Christ on that cross 2,000 years ago. By that, now I am righteousness by faith. Instead of me trying to attain some righteousness before God by being sorrowful enough about my sins or being sincere enough about the way I manner myself or repentant enough, or I try to do what's right, I try to make everybody love me, and I'm constantly getting frustrated, I abandon that, I actually repent from that, and I actually take Jesus Christ's righteousness that he accomplished on the cross by faith as mine. And of course, Scripture is very clear that when you do that, then you have this unshakable peace. See verse 1? We have peace with God Two ideas here. Number one, peace is an ending of hostilities between two warring parties. And that is, of course, what Scripture teaches. And the end of this passage is going to get into that a little bit. You have two enemies, and they make peace with one another. It's the end of conflict. It's the end of war. And that is certainly intended here, but it means more than that in this passage. It also means soul prosperity or soul peace. 
well-being within your soul. The idea of the Old Testament when the priest would give the blessing to the people. He would say, the Lord lift up his face upon you. You know, in a great king, you know, normally he keeps his face down and you have to scurry in front of him. But if a king, a king raises his face to even deign to look at you, you have his favor. The idea here is that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You have this soul peace, this soul prosperity as a result of this. So these things are all included in this unshakable peace, having been, past tense, justified by faith, we now presently have peace with God. And he was angry with us in the past, but he punished our substitute, who is mentioned at the end of verse 1, <coughs> the Lord Jesus Christ. See that? Join me in verse 1. With the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, moving on to verse 2, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we stand with a legal standing before the almighty, infinitely holy, judge of all flesh through Jesus Christ. No accusation can be laid against any Christian by men or by demons that can undo that legal standing. It is already done and settled in heaven. This settled legal standing is so important to us in terms of knowing this unshakable peace. Have you ever heard of the most notorious prison in America? It's down in Angola, Louisiana. It's called The Farm. You ever heard of this press? An amazing, amazing place. It is the largest maximum security prison in the country. There are 5,000 inmates there. It holds only the worst. Murderers, rapists, the armed robbers, the habitual felons. The average sentence for a prisoner there is 88 years. 3,200 of the 5,000 are serving life sentences. 90% of the inmates at the farm will die while incarcerated. No hope for parole. Their only hope is God. The Christian is like every prisoner at the farm. Our only hope is God. Listen to what the warden of this great and vast prison said some 20 years ago. He said, after the first execution that I supervised, I realized that I hadn't said a word to the dying prisoner about his soul. That ground all the way to the roots of my faith. I failed miserably. If someone is going to die and you have ample chance to talk to them about their soul, and you just sit there with your mouth closed, that's horrible. I have to live with that the rest of my life. Thank God for forgiveness. He goes on. At my second execution, I had the opportunity to share about the thief on the cross whom Christ forgave as they were crucified. Before the execution, I told the prisoner some of God's assurance of salvation. 
if he repented of his sins and trusted Christ as his Savior. At the time of his execution, the prisoner asked me to hold his hand. And from that time on, I've held the hand of several prisoners I've had to execute. They were Christians, and they wanted me to hold their hand. I take it from that they don't do electrocutions anymore. (laughs) I think this is probably the uh, thing where they struggle with what kind of chemical to put into the body. But what a picture of being held by the hand. And for every single Christian, it's like you're held not just in the hand, but in the arms of Jesus Christ through all of life. And then at that moment, when life must come to its natural end, man knows not his days. And we go. We're not only held by the hand, we're held by the soul through Jesus Christ. This is why every Christian boasts inwardly of an unshakable peace. We don't do it outwardly. This is an inward boast. And it's the same with the second boast in this passage as well. An indestructible hope, we'll call it that. The second boast we have is an indestructible host. And it's called glory, but it's really referring to heaven. Join me, please, at the end of verse 2. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. That phrase, glory of God, refers to the glory that God gives to those who have been justified by faith. This is a free gift that is given to individuals who have come to God by faith. Remember what I mean by faith, right? We're not talking about me figuring out how to put my trust in God, but me leaving everything else that I am tempted to trust in and do trust in, and instead shifting all my trust to Christ and Christ alone. That's what we mean by faith. It's the most simple thing to do, and it's also at the same time for any any of us the hardest thing to do until we do it. So, this is not talking here at the end of verse 2 about a, a... glory that we yet possess. It is a glory that is yet promised. The glory of God here referring to everything that is eternal and good and permanent. It's everything we experience after death or what theologians call glorification. The glory that comes from God. That's the idea there by the phrase the glory of God. The glory that comes from God. And it's it's indescribable to us in our present condition. It's the future enjoyment of God's presence that's absolutely stunning and soul-fulfilling. And when you get to heaven, at the first moment you are fully satisfied with God, but there is only an increasing satisfaction in God, delight in God, worship in God, wonder of God, amazement of God, delight in Him, inner understanding or what's called the interpenetration of the being of the triune God forever and ever in increasing measure. There will never come a time in heaven when you are bored. There will never come a time in heaven when you've reached a plateau like we do on earth. And we boast in the hope of glory. This will mean for us becoming morally perfect forever. We will lose the ability to sin. 
We will even lose the desire to sin. And even if we ask ourselves, hey, I wonder what it would be like to sin, we won't even be able to. And this will include a restoration to the glory of Adam that he lost when he sinned and a full and immediate restoration into perfect character, all of Christ-likeness. This will mean having your spirit forever housed in a resurrection body of glory, which will be indestructible, incorruptible, and incapable of experiencing suffering and sorrow and tears and pain and letdown. And we will enjoy the godly company of all the angels and all the redeemed. This is our indestructible hope. And to boot, on top of all of that, according to Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, there will be golf in heaven. Just in case you were interested, I know some of you are like, oh no, you just took away everything that was going to be good about heaven. You mean there's going to be golf there? But then again, if there's golf in heaven and you're perfect and heaven is good, you'll like it. Uh, this whole text here from verses 1 all the way through 11 is teaching that the Christian is going to heaven upon death because of this one great thing of justification by faith. You've been righteousness by faith. And thus, as this verse encapsulates it here, verse, the end of verse 2, excuse me, yeah, the end of verse 2, we hope, we exult in hope of the glory of God. Mm. The word exalt there means to magnify in your soul. You know, it's like Mary, when the angel Gabriel comes to her, and then she's reflecting back on it. And she's talking to Elizabeth, her sister, and she's got the baby Jesus inside of her, and she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is the idea here. It's, it's the magnification within you. It's, it's yourself boasting to yourself about what God has done for you and how good God is, and enjoying the, meditating the truths that what heaven's going to be like, and life is going to be like but all right okay great how then though can you know with certainty that you are going to go to heaven i mean just because someone boasts that they're going to go to heaven doesn't make it so would you agree in fact let's together think about the hardest situation that can ever come against somebody that could take away somebody's boasting of going to heaven it would be earthly trials. It would be the difficulties, even the horrors of life. The things that you fear most inside actually coming to pass. Sometimes that happens. Secret little things. If those happen to the Christian, would he not conclude that he is not in fact going to heaven because of the difficulty of the trials that have come upon him? And his response to them. And the amazing answer, the, the truly wondrous answer is this. Join me in verse 3 and 4. This is so fun. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. Now Paul just makes it exceedingly clear that tribulation or trials or just hardships, whatever word connects with you, Hard things, painful things, really hard issues of life. Instead of those things 
becoming the worst thing of your life as a Christian, they actually prove to you of where you are going. The worst thing that can happen to you, the worst trial, the whole onslaught of things against you and your soul and your body will actually cause you as a Christian to exult in the hope of glory even more. That's why he says in the beginning of verse 3, not only this, even more. Look at the end of verse 3. He says here, tribulation brings about perseverance. Trials bring about the power not to give up. Isn't that interesting? Boy, that's not the way we work naturally. And then, at the beginning of verse 4, look there, please. The perseverance brings about proven character. There's a real change of character that goes on within the Christian. So the gospel really does save a person, changing us from the love of sin to the love of holiness. And then still back in verse 4, proven character produces hope, the hope of the glory of God, hope of eternal life, hope that meaning you can start to see that heaven is going to be yours even before the time because you're beginning to see what God is producing in your life. And so we boast, we exult through the very things, tribulations, trials that would threaten our faith and our souls. All that the life's most intense and debilitating difficulties bring to us Christians actually produce further hope in heaven more than you had before they came which is so amazingly strange so we have this indestructible hope here no matter what's going on in our lives that hope gets increased an indestructible hope something we happily boast in and then third if you're taking notes both of you we have an ever-present comfort An ever-present comfort, our third boast. Look at verse 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We have an ever-present comfort, the Holy Spirit, our comforter. Notice how he writes it here at the end of verse 5. The Holy Spirit who was given to us, past tense. Now, some of you received the Holy Spirit 10 years ago. Others of you received the Holy Spirit 20 years ago. Um, I received it almost 36 years ago, the day I became a Christian. I received him 36 years ago. And, um, but every one of us at a different time, but it was always in the past. So the Holy Spirit was given to us at a point in time of our experience when we placed our trust away from ourselves and our feelings and our thinking and our desires of how to be good enough with God, of hope for heaven and put it all in Christ. And at that time, the Holy Spirit was given to us. And ever since then, he is our ever-present comfort. Now, I happen to think that an important word in verse 5 is the word disappoint. Disappoint. The idea behind disappoint is it's speaking of the day of your death. Many people will be greatly, greatly disappointed. Scripture says whoever puts their trust in Christ will not be disappointed, Romans 10. But there are going to be so many millions of people who upon death are greatly disappointed. They thought they were going to heaven. 
I, I now find it to be, to, is this the same way with you? That most people, when you ask them, are you scared to die? Say no. I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about everybody, just people. And it seems like it's the natural condition of people to figure out a way in their own minds not to be fearful of death, to convince themselves that whatever comes after death, if they believe there is anything after death, it's going to be good for them. Scripture says they're going to be disappointed if their faith is not in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here to you. The hope does not disappoint. The hope does not disappoint. You'll never have that massive disappointment that can never be turned back. In other words, it's not like you've trusted in something false. Not like you've trusted in a fairy tale. It's not like you've trusted it because you were raised in the church. You were raised in a Christian family, and so the reason why you trust it is just because of your limited experience. No. The Holy Spirit was given to you, and you have a hope that will not disappoint. So it's to comfort you during these days of trial. The, the Holy Spirit is, is yours to comfort you during these difficult days of living the disappointments, the the sadnesses that you go through. And you'll never experience the shame that other people are going to experience when the day of death comes to them. Instead, you're going to experience just the opposite. Not disappointment, but honor and glory. All of that. We have an ever-present comfort. This is our boast, the Holy Spirit. There's another boast in this passage as well. It is an impossible love. An impossible love. Now follow with me as I go through the next few verses, kind of the logic of how this works out. Paul makes first a simple statement about Christian truth. You ready? Verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This verse isn't presented here for us to argue about. He isn't even trying to build up to it. He's just putting it out there. We're just to receive it. We were helpless at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. And so to locate ourselves in verse 6, we are simply called helpless and ungodly. This is us in our natural condition helpless to be able to save ourselves, ungodly as to our attitude toward God. Now, next is a truism, verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. Are we agreed upon this? A simple truism I mean, people almost never die in the place of a righteous man, even though a righteous man seems to be deserving of some honor, but to extend your life out for a righteous man, okay, it does happen. Uh, but, and then he extends it on, though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die, and that, that does happen, does it not? I mean, there are soldiers who will jump on a grenade and do the baby 
curl around that grenade so that it blows up them, but not their mates, not their fellow men through whom they've, they've been through great difficulties and great exaltations with. We understand that. And, and when men do that, we reward them with the highest of honors. Posthumous, of course, but honors nonetheless. And they are to be held in, in honor. But, but you never ever see soldiers giving themselves up to protect suicide bombers. You never see them run up to the suicide bomber and say, let me take off your vest and let me put it on myself so you can go free and I can kill myself. They never do that. Never do that. So, look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the next boast, an impossible love. This is a Amazing, an impossible love. Someone asks, well, how can I know if God loves me right now? And this text answers that question. How do I know if God loves me right now? Well, this talks about a demonstration or showing. God demonstrates or shows his own love toward us. This is in the present tense. This is how God right now, today, shows his love toward us. This is how we know he loves us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did something in the past that proves to us in the present that he loves us. So right now, and always, God is loving you and every Christian. This day, Every day the Holy Spirit is enclosing your life with his ministries to you, all of them earned by Christ on the cross. And all of them are expressing this impossible love of God for you. It, the point being, of course, we're not worthy to be loved in this way. In fact, it goes contrary to all human standards. That's the point. So it's an impossible love. So we are taught by this verse, which is one of the first ones I memorized. How about you? That we are to look back at the cross to answer the question, does God love me today? Instead of looking like and asking, you know, what is, how do I know he loves me right now? In fact, let's ask that question. You know, what what does the love of God feel like? So that when you are sorrowful and lonely and hurting, maybe bitter, struggling with unforgiveness or pain, loneliness, being ignored, overlooked, what, is the, what does God's love feel like? And I can tell you what it feels like. This is what it feels like. It feels like crucifixion. That's actually what God's love feels like. Crucifixion. Go back to verse 6. You see the little phrase there, at the right time? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That refers to Christ's death of crucifixion. At the right time. That was on purpose. That wasn't an accident that he died 
on a cross. It wasn't like he could have died any old way and that would have been just as good for saving people. Not at all. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, the death by crucifixion includes the excruciating physical pain combined with the social shame of being crucified before your fellow man and specifically before your fellow Jew and then all the agony of it before God for Christ having been completely holy and righteous before God all 33 years, some odd years. So you, you have this impossible love that feels like scraping your back on wood with a virtually naked body rubbing up and down as you extend pressure into your legs in order to press up on a spike driven through your ankles so that you can at least lift up your diaphragm a little bit in order to take another half gulp of air in the hope that you can live a little bit longer while shards of wood are striking themselves into your raw and open back. I told you, this is an impossible love. This is what the love of God feels like. Okay, let's look at it a different way. Let's read verse 8, but look at it from Jesus' perspective, shall we? This is Jesus reading it, but God demonstrates his own love toward his own in that while they are sinners, I die for them. This is how I demonstrate, show the love of God. I die for them. This is an impossible love. You know, the soldier who falls on a grenade saving his fellow soldier, we get that. And it's marvelous not to diminish that a bit. It's staggering. Or have you heard the story of the little boy? His older sister was dying of a, a blood condition. And she had very rare blood. And uh, the doctors and his parents asked if, you know, could we test the little boy to see if he could be a match in order that we could do a transfusion there by saving your life? So they asked the little boy. And the little boy put his head down. And after a long pause, he looked back up and, and he said to them, okay. And so they took the little boy, I guess it was the next day. And they went in and they, they took the blood out of him. And from that they would use to build up other blood. And so they bring him out and, and when they take him out, they tell him, hey, that's it. You can get up now. And he looks up at them and, and he says to them, will she be okay now? And they say, oh, oh yes, we're quite confident that she'll be good. And then he, he looks down again and he, he looks back up and he says to them, that's really good. Now when do I die? Because we understand family love. What we don't understand is the love of dying on a cross and the horror and the shame and the pain and the agonies of it. 
we understand natural love. We, we, we do, and we have a whole day today to celebrate it, don't we? We don't understand is an impossible love. Of the best of men dying on the cross for his father's enemies who morally break his law with impunity in all kinds of bizarre and twisted ways. Yeah, I mean, you might die for your fellow soldier, and you might even die for your sister. Be willing to, but die for your enemies, your father's enemies? I think not. And you see, this is why we boast, because we know we're loved because of the impossibility of the entire scenario. This doesn't make sense. This isn't the thing that men do. This is the thing that God does. And because this is what God does, therefore it has to be perfect. It has to be right because it's so high above what we would do at our best. And this just blows our mind because our salvation is wrapped up in an impossible love and it takes it out of our hands and it is all in the hands of God boast that where I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Are you with me? Are you understanding? Great. Great. Well, there's another boast. Actually, we've got a couple more to go through here. There's another boast, as if that one isn't good enough. Let's close and pray, right? There's another one that I want to take you with me a little bit here. A fifth boast. Another inward happy boast. It's this, an ascended Savior. An ascended Savior. We have someone in heaven who has saved us. And, and someone in heaven who will save us. Look at verse 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, that's the cross, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Boy, this really ties in with Joey's messages. We shall be saved, future tense, from the coming wrath of God through him. And the words at the beginning of verse 9, much more than, mean that God's love for you in the impossible love of the cross were only just the beginning of his love for you. Much more than the love of God demonstrated in Christ dying for us will be the love of God demonstrated to us when, like it says at the end of verse 9, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. One love of God on the cross we didn't see, this love of God we will see. Hey, if God has already done the most difficult thing, to save sinners through the death of his own son, how much more can he be depended upon to save us from every? thing bad that is coming in the future. And by the way, wrath there includes hell. So the answer is obviously how much more, completely more, God can do it all. This is no problem for God. If he did the death of Christ on the cross for sinners and proved his love that way, then certainly, and isn't it easier that he can prove the love of God through saving us from the wrath to come? God's wrath is not on his those whom he loves, it's on his enemies. God's wrath doesn't fall on his own children. And that's why he really moves on to talking about 
reconciliation. Look at verse 10 with me, please. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Christ died for his enemies. Really, we were his enemies. But no longer, now we're reconciled. But, you know, there's always times and there's always people who are fearing, well, okay, God was not angry with me when I became a Christian because I did what I was supposed to do, but now that time has gone on, I haven't done all that I should, and it seems like he's angry with me today. Seems like he's angry with me, and that's, that's obviously true because of the hurt in my life and the pain in my life. But verse 10 says, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The life there is Christ's ascension life in heaven, his resurrection life. This is his life now up in heaven, permanently in glory, totally in charge, never to be despised again, ruling over all things. As a high priest, he's not only your high priest, he's your low priest. He's every priest you ever need. He's everything you ever need. And so he isn't angry with you. He's actually up in heaven, having you reconciled to him now by his work. And he is working in life in order to bring you to him in increasing sanctification and to demonstrate to you the depth of his love for you. So it's, it's not that he is now angry with you. If he was angry with you, that would have to mean that he didn't do enough on the cross for you. He's the failure, not you. He's a bigger failure than you, in fact. Because evidently, he really didn't take away the wrath of God against you when he died on the cross. He must have left something behind and so didn't finish the work of atonement, didn't finish the work of propitiation, didn't finish the work of reconciliation. You're really not reconciled to God. You're in a probation status with God. If you do good enough, he'll love you. If you don't do good enough, you're a class B Christian, class C Christian, class D Christian, somewhere down the road, because you aren't good enough, you aren't doing good enough. That's what we tell ourselves. That's what it feels like, doesn't it, sometimes? In the depths of our conscience... Our thoughts day by day, we drive to work, lay down our heads on our pillows at night. Things that go through our minds. <laughs> Boy, it's a good thing those aren't scripture, huh? Because they're not true. They're not true. Those are actually the evidence of how badly we needed to be saved by such a great love, by such a great kindness. And so now we have an ascended Savior who is in heaven and who will save us through his life, this resurrection, glorified ascension life, from where he now reigns. He'll never be mistreated again. He was so mistreated when he came his first time, was he not? And it all culminated in the cross where the shame and the pain that he endured was to the full. It was at the right time, as verse 6 talks about that. Man, well, now he's in heaven. He'll never be ashamed again. He's reconciled to you. He's reconciled you with the Father. 
And so he'll never be ashamed of you again. And so his love for you is what he's working out for you in life in order that you can know him for who he is as this ascended Savior. Psalm 40, verse 5, says that his thoughts toward you are more than the grains of sand of the sea. You ever done this? If you haven't, sometime do it. Don't do it today, though. It's too cold. Go out to the ocean, pick up a handful of sand, and start counting the grains. <laughs> his thoughts toward you are more than that. Oh, he's constantly all about you. He knows all about you. Your life is all fully wrapped up in him. He's not a failure as a savior. He's not going to let you go. He loves you. And here you are taught that you are reconciled to him. Now, reconciliation. We tend to think of, you know, people who were angry with each other, but things changed and now they're friends. It's actually contract language. So again, we're still kind of in a courtroom scenario here where, okay, there's a contract and we're going to figure out how to take two warring parties and bring them together so that now they're reconciled. And that's actually the idea here. Yes, it's true that by coming, being reconciled, we become family, but let's not leave it there. Even though that's included, let's go the full length and talk about what happens when you have two warring parties who are legally reconciled. We are now as fully reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are reconciled to each other. They are so perfectly reconciled to each other because they've never actually been apart from each other. They exist in perfect love with each other. They've never had an argument through all eternity. They've never had an issue where one was self-seeking and wanted to put oneself first before the other. And, and so their reconciliation is complete. They've always been reconciled forever and eternity. And that is exactly how reconciled you are to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, every Christian, this moment. If he was to lose you, he'd have to cut off part of his trinity. He'd have to reject his son and what his son did. It wasn't good enough to get someone as bad as you, but it was. So as a result here, you have an ascended Savior. And then last, let's just go to our last boast. Pick this one up. We have an first, back in verse 1, an unshakable peace. The second boast was an indestructible hope of glory. The third boast was an ever-present comfort, the Holy Spirit. The fourth was an impossible love. We saw that God demonstrated his own love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then lastly, we have this, excuse me, next to last, we have this ascended Savior. And lastly, we have Last boast, a God-based salvation. A God-based salvation. Verse 11 only. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now check the text again here. Did we get reconciled to God? Or did God get reconciled to us? It's more than just semantics. Who got reconciled to who? Did we get reconciled to God or did God get reconciled to us? If we got reconciled to God, that means that something was changed within us to make us worthy enough of God 
Or if God got reconciled to us, it means that something changed with him, whereby now he is friendly toward us. Which is it? Who changed? It's not us. It's God who changed. Look at the end of verse 11. Through whom we have now received the gift, the reconciliation. We didn't do it. It's something we receive. It was done by Christ on the cross. God changed toward us. We were his enemies back in verse 10. Now we've received the reconciliation. Which means that everything from verses 1 all the way through verse 11 is all about a God-based salvation. And this is why we boast again, just to say it again. Because it was all done by God. He's the one who accomplished it. It's so high, so far beyond how we think about things. He had to do it. And because we don't have a man-based salvation, we boast in it. It's all for our happy boasting. It's like it says at the beginning of verse 11, not only this, that's referring back to everything from verses 1 through 10, and not only this, well, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've now received the reconciliation. It's just a, a crowning thought. It's just a crowning, crowning thought. Everything we have as Christians is from God. And so we are given this passage to tell us that we've been righteousness by faith, that we've been loved by God, that we've been cared for by him, that our trials are, are all part of the process that draw us close to him and make us assured in our faith. That teaches us, okay, that while we're in this very, very miserable spiritual condition, yet God chose the highest and the best and the most amazing of all means by which to take us to himself, to love us, to show us himself. And so with all these things, then everybody has a happy boast. It's like the guy Happy Jack. Happy Jack was an interesting guy. He was a simple guy, didn't get much of an education. He lived a pretty rough and tumble life until... He heard about Christ. And hearing about Christ dying on the cross for his sins melted his wicked heart. And he believed on the Lord. And he heard a little ditty, and it was this. It was, Jesus Christ is my all in all. And that's really what he used to say. I am a poor sinner and nothing at all, but Jesus Christ is my all in all. And so people would say to him, but Jack, don't you doubt your salvation? I mean, look at who you are and where you came from. And he said, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but this I do know. I'm a poor sinner and nothing at all, but Jesus Christ is my all in all. And, and Christians would come to him and say, well, Jack, I mean, um, you seem to have a lot of boldness and a lot of thinking about yourself that seems to imply that, you know, you're better than other Christians. And, and, and Jack would say, well, I don't, I don't know anything about that, but this I do know that, I'm a poor sinner and nothing at all, and Jesus Christ is my all in all. Jack began to go to a church, and the elders of the church, uh, knowing his notorious background, were deeply concerned that they might be tainted with such a man being in their church. And so they brought him in for a membership interview, and uh, they said, uh, Jack, you know, we have a number of things about our church that are very important to us, and we, you know, we... We would want to be sure that you, know, you understand all the nuances of what we are as a church. And Jack said, okay. 
And then they began to explain to him, and he kind of stopped them, and he said, you know, I don't understand really any of these things. I'm not an educated person, but this I do know, that I am a poor sinner and nothing at all, and Jesus Christ is my all in all. And after they quizzed him for another 15 minutes, they couldn't figure out why to keep him out of the church, and so they let him in, because after all, at the end, what was he but a poor sinner and nothing at all, but Jesus Christ was his all in all. It just kind of breaks it down to the most basic elements of being a Christian. I'm a poor sinner and nothing at all, but Jesus Christ is my all in all. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, so full of glory and deserving of all honor and worship from all creation, we this morning, on behalf of it all, render to you gratitude and a depth of thanks for the glorious salvation that is through your Son, for the great theological truths that have been peppered at us through this passage, great truths that give us a stake in the ground to hammer deep into the promises of God where our souls which go this way and that and their thoughts that are sometimes so exceedingly dishonoring to you may have something that they may hold on to. Thank you that salvation through Jesus Christ is your salvation, not the kind that we would invent. And thank you for then not only making it happen 2,000 years ago, but for loving us today. Remembering what love from God feels like. Some of us can attest to it very, very well that through our lives we experience great trials and difficulties. It feels sometimes like a cross rubbing up against our back. But because you loved us so much, because you cared for us in our spiritual condition to the extent you did, we want to tell you we trust you We trust you. You're worthy of our trust and you're worthy of our honor. And we thank you and bless you in your great Savior's, in our great Savior's name. Amen.